Some moments pass quickly, others slowly, but life continues to move forward. And stopping from time to time to reflect, to pause and to look back on where we've been and how far we've traveled gives us a fuller perspective. It's one we often lack while we're entrenched in each moment. And it's not until we step back that we can see the larger picture. There's a richness in reflection. There's a vibrancy in the memories that arise, that speak to us differently with the passage of time, that open our eyes to things we may have missed previously. We learn from each experience. We gain wisdom. We adapt. We see things in a new light, and in many ways, we grow thankful. We appreciate the rewards and challenges placed in our paths. And when we reach certain mile markers, we catch our breath, run the highlight reels, and reflect. A decade after starring in the first Star Wars film, actor Mark Hamill talked about his time as Luke Skywalker and what it was like to work with the franchise's creator, George Lucas. In the 1988 interview with the Lucasfilm Fan Club magazine, Hamill said, I wish I knew what I know about George now when I did the first Star Wars, because he's a very introspective fellow and can be sort of intimidating when you really don't know him. And he's really very easygoing and free. I was sorry he didn't direct any of the other Star Wars films. It's hard to say that, though, because Irvin Kirshner did such a great job on The Empire Strikes Back, and it was such a different dark movie. But I was kind of sorry George didn't continue in the way Steven Spielberg did with the Indiana Jones movies. But I can understand that. And decades after first playing Anakin Skywalker in the prequel films, Hayden Christensen ruminated on his relationship with fellow actor Ewan McGregor. Christensen quickly formed a bond with McGregor, who played Anakin's mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. They worked together on the prequel trilogy for the next six years, and then reunited for the 2022 Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Outlining the history of their friendship, Christensen said, I was the new kid on the block, and he went out of his way to make me feel welcomed and comfortable. I remember the first time we met, he gave me a big hug, and we kind of hit it off right from the get-go. I think our relationship, in a lot of ways, sort of mirrored our character's relationship at that point, too. We were very close and remained close. We just hadn't seen each other in a little while. But we got together before we started filming Kenobi, just to catch up, and it was so nice to reconnect with him. I love the man so much. And looking back on his time playing the former Stormtrooper-turned-resistance hero Finn, John Boyega recently recounted some of the memories that resonated from his time working on the sequels. Boyega said, I always think about the memories of the experience. The other day I was going through my phone and I found a video of me and Oscar Isaac playing the video game Street Fighter between takes. You kind of miss these people after a while, like Oscar and Daisy, and those connections that you made. The filmmaking experience, what I learned from watching the producers do their jobs, what that meant. And when I go to a store and see a Finn action figure or something, it just makes me chuckle. I feel like a retired superhero. It's weird. This thing follows me wherever I go. But for me, it brings back the sweetest memories. And it reminds me of how far I've come independent of that. 
For Star Wars fans and collectors, the year has definitely been a memorable one. So much has happened over the past 12 months. And after recording more than 40 episodes in that time period, covering the events within the hobby, the community, and the franchise, I'd like to be your tour guide. And I think you'll enjoy the journey. This is part one of a look back at 2023 from a collector's perspective. This is a trip through each month, highlighting unforgettable moments as a Star Wars fan. This is the last stop on the tour before we begin a new season and a new year. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Before we review 2023, let's wind the clock back a little further to 2022. The first weekend in December kicked off with a visit to the home of Mike DiStefano, a Pennsylvania Star Wars fan who hosted his annual Sithmas party for 70 collectors representing four regional clubs. It was one of those meetups that immediately appears on the highlight reel when fondly looking back on the year and it was likely the last big meetup of 2022. The following weekend, my entire family gathered at a restaurant to celebrate my parents' milestone anniversary, and I was invited to a fellow Empire State Club members' meetup the following weekend. But after that anniversary dinner, one by one, my entire family came down with COVID. By the following Friday, I had tested positive as well. Leading up to the week, I had been producing podcasts at a pretty steady rate and was on track to end the year with 51 episodes, a number that had pleasantly surprised me. I had been working on a two-part series to end the year, which, like this episode, was a look back on Star Wars and collector-related experiences over the previous 12 months. However, my bout with COVID was a long-term one and it pushed the final two episodes of 2022 into January of 2023, where our look back on the year begins. But I can promise you, this year has been a fascinating one for Star Wars fans and collectors, and it was filled with amazing moments, like an epic live auction in Pennsylvania, another celebration convention in Europe, a collecting club's 20th anniversary, and a film's 40th, and all of the toy shows, conversations, and meetups that make our community and the hobby so connective and so memorable. So let's step back in time and walk through the first half of the year together, viewing 2023 from a collector's perspective.
January. I published the first episode of the year on January 22nd, titled A Look Back at 2022 from a Collector's Perspective. It was a great way to reflect on the previous 12 months. The two-part series took more than a month to put together, and it required almost every ounce of mental energy I had during my first month under COVID's grasp. But having that time to think allowed me to take in each month, episode by episode, and it highlighted the richness of these collecting moments, as well as the memorable toy shows and meetups, the premieres of new Star Wars series, and everything else that was worth covering in our community and in our hobby. And I'm happy to say episodes 117 and 118 form a vibrant snapshot of an incredible year as a collector and a Star Wars fan. February. The shortest month of the year kicked off with one of the most anticipated auctions in the past decade. In November of 2022, Dan Morphy captured the attention of the entire vintage Star Wars collecting community with one post. In it, he announced that a find of more than 450 carded Kenner Star Wars figures would be auctioned in February through Morphy Auctions, a Pennsylvania-based auction house. Initially, Morphy said the carded figures would be grouped by character and sold as lots. This meant that a bidder could take home eight carded 21-back Boba Fetts in one shot. Or even better still, eight 12-back Luke Skywalker figures, with five of them being the rare double-telescoping variants. However, a collector reached out to Morphe in the months leading up to the sale and convinced the auction house to list the majority of the carded figures individually. The strategy was a solid one, both for collectors and for Morphe auctions. Most collectors would not be able to afford eight carded Boba Fetts, but could potentially purchase one of them. And if the number of interested bidders increased as a result of splitting up the lots into separate auctions, the frenzy over landing one would likely propel the prices higher. Episode 111 covers the Morphe find in much greater detail, but it represented almost every Kenner figure in a healthy way. The auction contained eight carded figures for most of the first 21 characters released under the Star Wars line. And there were three of almost each figure from The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and 1985's Power of the Force. The Morphe auction came at a very interesting time. Beginning in July of 2022, overall interest in collectibles diminished, as the momentum of the white-hot pandemic era quickly faded. The November Hakes auction ended the year on a quiet note, indicating that the slowdown was likely a longer-term drag as many collectors and resellers closed their wallets going into the holiday season. But a find of this magnitude, 450 carded figures in seemingly high-grade condition and including a full case of 24-carded Empire Strikes Back Yodas, was the beacon to draw collectors back, if only temporarily. I had planned to attend the Morphe auction in person on February 1st, along with a number of my collector friends and the auction felt like an event. In addition to the sheer amount of carded figures being offered at one time, it was the first opportunity for many collectors to be in the same room since the transition of fall into winter. 
but my COVID symptoms hadn't cleared by the beginning of February, and I was not well enough to travel to Denver, Pennsylvania. I had wanted to record at least one episode about it for the podcast, live from the auction. At the last minute, I reached out to a number of friends who kindly agreed to record clips during the bidding and share their thoughts and reactions to the event in real time. West Virginia collector Sam Sams gave us live updates on bidding for some of the bigger ticketed items in the auction. Here's Sam as he takes us through the first double-telescoping Luke, the full case of 24-carded Yodas, and the first Boba Fett of the day. A 1,008, different story here. What do we got? Tower of Pulse, Luke Skywalker, double-telescoping lightsaber. I have left action here online. What do you have? 26,000 for the first DT Luke. 4451 Here comes the 24 Yodas. Left action, what do you have? 18,000, give me 19,000. Who's in at 19? 18 bid 19, give me 19. I have 18 online, give me 19. Who's in at 19,000? 19, 19, how about 19? I have 18 to my right, looking for 19,000. 18 bid 19, all in. Don't scratch your name. 18 bid 19, last call, 19,000, 19,000. $18,000 for 24 Yodas with a shipper case. Here comes Boba. All righty, what do we got here? Lot 1010, Boba Fett. Left asking online with Ben. What do you have? 13,000, give me 14,000. I have 13 online, who wants it at 14? 14, 14, give me 14,000. 14, 14, who wants 14? I have 13,000, looking for 14,000. 13, 14, anybody 14? 14, 14, last call, 14,000, 14,000, all in all done, 14,000, 14,000. So 13,000, 13,000 for Boba Fett. After the auction, I recorded conversations with six collectors who were in the room that day and had experienced the auction firsthand. Steve Renzi, Sam Sams, Mark Rusciano, Eric Janicki, Jonathan McElwain, and Matthew Fox spoke about their expectations for the day, if they bid on and won anything, and what Morphe's first Star Wars auction was really like. During our chat, Jonathan revealed the total sum reached for the Star Wars portion of the Morphe auction, and how it compared to another sale that same day of a 1952 sealed eight-pack brick of Topps baseball wax packs, some of the rarest and most desirable trading card packs in existence. I uh, Last night, I, I took a look at the auction. You were able to kind of download it. And so I added up all the Star Wars items. And with the buyer's premium, all of the Star Wars items um, came up to 919000 
$126.25. And so that was slightly more than the Topps Brick, which again, with the buyer's premium sold for $873,300, but pretty darn close to one another. So um, anyways, to me, it just sort of puts a perspective on, um, you know, kind of where where our hobby is maybe relative to some others. And and I know, I, I think that in terms of modern baseball cards, I think, you know, that that brick is is up there as far as, um, you know, desirability, but, you know, really outside of my wheelhouse, so probably shouldn't speak to it. But anyways, I just thought that was an interesting, you know, kind of comparison to make. If you're interested in learning more about the Morphe Auction, you'll find the two-part series in episodes 119 and 120, titled Collectors Share Their Experiences from the $900,000 Morphe Star Wars Toy Auction. They're definitely worth a listen, and will give you insight into the notable Star Wars event that you won't find anywhere else. The Morphe auction certainly sparked a flurry of conversations within the collecting community. Some declared the Morphe results as a sign the roaring days of the pandemic collecting were back, and that the market had simply taken a breather over the previous seven months. Others pointed to the lingering dip in interest seeping into many of the formerly hyperactive collecting groups on social media as a truer gauge of the hobby. Collectors presented varied opinions concerning the potential direction of Star Wars and collecting. But the issue looming over the conversations was that it was simply too early in the year to glean any definitive answers. For the second half of February, I produced two episodes focusing on analysis. They were a purposeful step away from the bright lights of the recent auction. I wanted to look at the landscape of collecting as a whole, to try to figure out where Star Wars and our hobby were heading. Around this time, the President of the United States delivered his annual State of the Union address to the country, and it gave me the idea to create my own State of the Hobby episode. In it, I covered three major topics that would have an effect on Star Wars fans and collecting. The first was whether the Morphe auction was an accurate indicator of the current Star Wars market. I personally saw the event as an outlier, affected by what I called recent nostalgia. Here is my explanation from episode 121, The State of Star Wars and Collecting. For those who became collectors during the pandemic or were actively involved, it was certainly a wild ride. And then the ride slowed down for quite a while. It hasn't been the same since. And while that may actually be a very good thing, I think a type of recent nostalgia has kicked in for some who are looking for that excitement again. And I think the Morphe auction sent a signal that the roaring 2020s are back for Star Wars collectors. But that may be a false signal. And it may be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Collectors see the final hammer prices from Morphe and start scooping up pieces before prices go up further. That begins a chain reaction. If the prices stay high for the next few weeks or months, this may cause some collectors who regretted missing out on the peak prices of last year to sell off their vintage figure collections at the larger auctions. And so we may see the higher quality items that draw in high dollar values for sale at these auctions that command record prices. Collectors will see more results from the auction houses, and thinking the trend is here to stay, they'll spend more on items, they'll keep buying, 
and the cycle will continue. But more than likely, and as I mentioned before, the Morphe results may equate to being a false signal. I hate to compare something like beloved action figures to stocks, but think of it this way. A stock only retains its current value if investors are willing to continue buying it at that price. And with so many outside forces affecting our finances and how we spend, I just can't see the market maintaining the Morphe levels. Because I think we're going to see even more Star Wars-themed auctions over the coming year. And I don't know if there are enough collectors that can or will buy Star Wars memorabilia at those prices. I also posed the question, what if the Star Wars content released over the next 10 months was a letdown? I found that fascinating to ponder, as most fans expected the third season of The Mandalorian and the first season of Ahsoka to be guaranteed hits. And yet, Disney's spotty track record challenged this notion, and it was a bigger problem than most people realized at the time. And finally, I looked at the future of the modern toy releases by Hasbro. The company's quarterly earnings showed a double-digit drop in toy sales year over year. Hasbro attempted to staunch the financial bleeding and to focus on consumers by eliminating its endless parade of pre-orders. But with rising prices for figures, a stumbling economy, and frustration among the fan base, I believe the Vintage Collection and the Black Series would have a difficult time retaining a larger interest in 2023. Episode 122 ended the month with 8 key tips for Star Wars collectors. After analyzing the state of the hobby, I wanted to provide advice based on some of the lessons I learned in my years of collecting Star Wars figures and prototypes. The 8 tips served as a roadmap that could apply to any collector, regardless of where they were in their collecting journey. After all, many people started collecting during the pandemic. Navigating a hobby in a community can be overwhelming and difficult at times. And for the established collectors, I thought these tips would serve as helpful reminders to stay on track for a successful and rewarding experience. Here's one of the tips from that episode. Number 5. Building a War Chest Collecting can be a battle. It's a fight to locate prototypes and production figures. It's being vigilant about getting to them first, and it's having the resources to pay for them if and when they land in your lap. Imagine if someone reached out to you tomorrow and said, I'm selling a collection of carded Star Wars figures. Are you interested in buying them? Or a friend tells you a fellow collector is parting with a stack of vintage proof cards and is checking to see if either of you wanted any before putting them up for sale in the collecting groups. Or you see an ad for someone liquidating their entire modern Hasbro action figure collection, which totals hundreds or thousands of pieces and covers lines from the past 25 years. Or your dream piece, the one you never thought you'd have a chance to own, is finally available. Do you have the money to make it happen? Now some of these examples are a bit extreme, but as I've learned over the years, when it comes to collecting, We never know what tomorrow brings. And often, following the familiar idiom, when it rains, it pours. The essential question is, are you ready? 
As much as I'd love to own a Luke Jedi hard copy, if one came up for sale, it would probably be out of my price range. But if an Ahsoka Tano first shot surfaced, believe me, I'm ready to purchase it and have some extra money in reserves. I remember hearing about some of my longtime vintage collector friends. They would be at an auction and would simultaneously be on the phone with friends trying to raise funds by selling pieces from their collections. Competition has ramped up, especially since the pandemic sparked a collecting renaissance. Collectors scour estate sales and auctions from their phones, and there are so many eyes on almost everything that surfaces. And the three things that can separate you from the rest of the pack is knowledge, a little ingenuity, and the funds to complete your purchase. And the way to make sure you're ready is by building a war chest. If you're able to do so, put some emergency collecting money aside. Add to it whenever you sell pieces from your collection. Figure out what you'd need to have on hand in case something pops up that you couldn't turn down. And don't dip into it for lesser purchases. Because it all happens to us at some point. A door will suddenly appear out of nowhere. It slowly opens to reveal something that makes our eyes widen, our hearts race, and our hands tremble. Those are special moments, ones often beyond our control. But you and I can be prepared. Build that war chest. Protect it. Keep it close. And then use it to make those special moments, those once-in-a-lifetime collection-defining moments, a reality. Build that war chest. March. If February centered largely around an auction, March focused on the return of the toy show season for Star Wars fans. ZoloCon kicked off the toy show season for many living in the tri-state area. Held in a former NASA centrifuge in Warminster, Pennsylvania, the weekend of ZoloCon has been one of my favorites each year. It's generally the first time seeing many other collectors in months, and the show has been a constant source of amazing finds. This year, I had the privilege of visiting ZoloCon the day before the show opened to the public and attending during visitor setup. I have been to every ZoloCon since 2016, but had never witnessed firsthand how the show came together. It was a fascinating experience to peek behind the curtain as the dealers carted in their wares and as the tables slowly filled with rare toys and collectibles spanning two floors within the centrifuge. I returned that Saturday to shop the show with the early bird attendees for an hour before doors opened to the public. This year's ZoloCon was as crowded as it had been the year before, but the atmosphere was noticeably different. The 2022 show ran at the height of the collecting boom, when prices and activity were at their peaks. And almost nine months after the values and interest began to wane, the people walking into the centrifuge that March would either be willing to treat themselves to something after being cooped up during the winter, or they might come home empty-handed but satisfied to have had a day out. For the first toy show of the year in this region, many dealers likely did not know what to expect from the buying public. 
The results of the Morphe auction gave vendors hope that Star Wars figures and collectibles would heat up again as spring approached. And although there were a number of signs pointing to a longer-term lull, no one really knew what to expect. I recall the prices of many of the Star Wars items at Zolocon were comparable to items sold on eBay. And most of the collectors seemed to be less interested in buying anything that day, and were more excited about being back at a toy show. Here are Empire State Collectors Mark Rusciano and Eric Franks, live from Pete LaRose's booth, as they share their thoughts on the show and what it was like to be back together in the same room once again. Sounds good. Are you, are you both having fun so far here? Is this... yes. yes. One to a ten. In the moment or overall? Overall. <laughs> I mean, this interview raised the, the moment level. David but, Quinn always brings the game Yeah, definitely. So like a 9-5. Prior like to the claustrophobia of, of, Pete, of Pete's booth was at like a 1.5. Yeah. This interview is like... Now it's bumped up. Oh, it's, eight, it's at least an 8. Okay, well, that, yeah. that's, the, that's really the goal. Exactly, that, that, yeah. I'll give it a solid 8 right now. I might give it a 9 wow. if we get out of here. Yeah, it's a good show. Okay. I like it. After being cooped up for the winter, I think yeah. the last time I got out was maybe for the annual, and then... Now maybe I went to one toy show between the annual and now. So this is kind of the the winter's almost over. Although I had to drive through like 20 minutes of snow to get here this Did morning. You really? Yeah. Up in northern New York, we had we had snow this morning, but then down here, just it's 20 minutes nice. of snow though. That's 20 yeah. minutes of snow, and then it was then it was in Binghamton, and then it was fine. Wow. Am I supposed to say my number? I think I'm fine. <laughs> I, I would say as long as it's over a four or five, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, then yeah. Hey, Absolutely, win. yeah. We totally exactly. win. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a variable bit rate, so I really can't tell <laughs> It you. goes minute to minute. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that's nice, too, is, you know, we've got friends that are here. Yes. You know, we're sitting here talking with you and you know, seeing Sean. I like to call them acquaintances. Yeah. I think that's really yes. positive yes. right now, Eric. Yes. So <laughs> people I, whose names were familiar. I feel like I'm going to be cut from this interview because you're so positive. Uh oh. Well, there's usually always one or two people that I see at this that I might not see at anything else the rest yes. of the year. Yeah. Uh, but I know that they'll be here and I get to see. Them. And you can also kind of check off the box that you got to see them at the first show of the year instead of waiting to see whether or not you're going to go through a whole year and not see them. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Dave, how are you enjoying the show, Dave? I'm enjoying the show a lot. I think I've, I've reached my breaking point. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's gotten more crowded than I really thought it would be, which is nice. Um, but yeah, this I, is when the circle, this is when the circular strategy doesn't really work in your favor. Yeah. It's this crowded. And and it all it turns into like a line because you have people that yep. are coming one way and people coming another, and then you just have this little kind of tiny yeah. avenue. To, to, it's like a lazy river pool. Yes. Like, uh, at, like, the <laughs> We, you're just floating yeah. in like COVID at the that MGM. point. This is the MGM. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we have some uh, some some transactions happening yeah. around us and everything, and this is good. And it's uh, it's beer o'clock for Mr. Larose. It, it is beer o'clock for Mr. Larose. Yeah. One time. All right. Well, gents, enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much. Episodes 124 and 125 formed a two-part series titled Star Wars Collectors and Vendors Recap the Pickups and Trends from the Columbus Toy Show. In the pre-pandemic years, I traveled to Columbus each spring and fall to attend the show. Columbus was the first long-distance trip I made specifically for a toy show, and that sole decision to try something new in 2017 resulted in a bounty of blessings I'm still counting today. 
I've developed friendships with so many collectors and had some memorable moments with them at the show and beyond those toy weekends. I also had the fortune of some incredible Star Wars finds there, landing everything from a Power of the Force 2 mock-up to vintage carded figures like a 12-back Darth Vader and an R2-D2 with a pop-up saber. This spring, I was unable to attend the Columbus Toy Show. But I wanted to know what it was like for those who toured the Lausch building that Saturday and Sunday, and I had so many questions. I wanted to know if attendance was consistent with previous Columbus shows, where 400 to 600 shoppers would queue in an early bird line that would wrap around the building. I was interested to hear what types of Star Wars treasures were found this time, and I longed to learn more about the toy show from those who were there. So I reached out to eight collectors and vendors to hear their unique takes on that weekend in March. Many of them, like Vicki Bitter, Zach Curtis, Tony Kramer, and Clifton Boggs were friends that I had first met during my Columbus trips. Listening back to these episodes now, it's interesting to note the trends our friends mentioned back in the spring, and how we're still seeing many of them play out currently. Tony Kramer, a collector from the Cincinnati area, capped his experience in a pretty straightforward and relatable way. So, for perspective... A year ago, the same show, I took a fair number of Power of the Force things, rare things, unique things, and after the show, I bought a new family car. This show, I managed to clear about half a trash bag of Pizza Hut Land Before Time puppets, some broken Dino Riders, and animation cells. On the way home, I was able to get some groceries. (laughs) Very different in scale. And yet Columbus also yielded some fantastic finds for collectors like Vicky Bitter through the help of collector Todd Chamberlain. What kind of Star Wars stuff did you see? Was it, um, what was the breakdown as far as modern and vintage? I would say it was a good bit vintage. I tend to glaze over modern, but... I guess there is more and more of it that pops up. I know the tables and the vendors that I'm looking for. I recognize their shelving units from afar. So I kind of hone in on the people that I'm used to visiting with. Honestly, as you know, it's as much a social and uh, what am I looking the word I'm looking for. It's much more a social experience for me as much as it is a shopping experience. So I saw lots of familiar faces in the crowd Lots of good boxed items and mint on card, a good bit of loose and uh, oddities. Todd Chamberlain is always the one that can come to the table with something I may never have seen. I actually picked up a Wicket Bradley watch from him and a roll of Wicket wrapping paper from Andy Loney. It was a good time around for me. He had a whole bin of Bradley watches. And when I was just about to the bottom of it and thought there was nothing there, for me, because I already have two of the three, I pull out the one that I need and have been looking for forever. He even had like a huge strawberry shortcake display with the original shipper leaned up against the back of his booth that more than tempted me if I had a bigger house and more oh, money wow. to spend. It was it was an intense and very cool piece. He's got a bunch of strawberry shortcake shelf talkers. Like his eclectic mix of stuff is just unbelievable. I think he also sold four. Spanish uh, Ewok 
books, like hardcover books that have the little tiny book in the middle with the artwork around. Was, he had, I, I never am disappointed by Todd's booth. April. While the Columbus show stumbled a bit with its spring event, another Midwest toy show approached the stratosphere. Xenia's Great Ohio Toy Show ran during the last weekend in March. Hyde assumed that the low attendance for Columbus would also lead to similar results at Xenia. But I was completely wrong. I remember receiving a text from Zach Curtis shortly after the weekend wrapped. He wrote, Xenia's show was insane kind of changed my entire perspective of the toy market. Almost 10,000 people there. Incredible sales. Felt like 2019 again. His note came as a total surprise. It left me wanting to know how it had changed Zach's perspective on the toy market, and if others in that region had encountered the same feeling only a week after attending and vending at Columbus. And in that moment, I decided to do an episode devoted to the Xenia show. Zach, along with Vicki Bitter and Clifton Boggs, joined me again to speak about their experiences. And this time, Joel Slater and Mike Esposito, two passionate Ohio-based vintage collectors, also shared insight into their time at Xenia. And since the genesis of the episode is really tied to Zach, let's hear a little on how the show affected him in a positive way. I had, had a great time in, in, uh, in Xenia this time. Um, it, it was awesome. It's been over a year since I, I've got to do that show. Um, I missed the last one, unfortunately, for a business trip of mine. Um, so it, it had been kind of a year away from this show. Uh, and I, I, I guess I'd kind of for, forgotten about it and what it was. And uh, it, it's it's such a unique show. It's a, it's a very cool feel. It's got, uh, it's got five buildings. I uh, know six buildings now. No, seven buildings. It, it keeps growing. Um, we're, we're up <laughs> seven, to seven buildings, buildings yes. now, all spread out. Uh, that we had record attendance this year. Uh, I want to say, pro- I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if we were ten thousand people. Um, but it was it was really cool. And in a time where I've seen some of my eBay sales slow down and some of the uh, some of the social media stuff uh, dry up a little bit more, there there seemed to be a lot of enthusiasm at the show. Uh, I noticed a lot of new faces, new collectors I hadn't seen before. That was really encouraging to me, um, and and a lot of uh, a lot of higher end sales with with people showing up with uh, notebooks full of their uh, their want lists and things they were crossing down, crossing off the list, and uh, I just felt a lot of really cool energy. Um, it was a great time. I got to meet a lot of new people that I hadn't met before in the hobby. So yeah, it was a great experience. Arguably the biggest Star Wars event this year was the Star Wars Celebration Convention in London, which ran from April 7th through the 10th. Each celebration weekend kicks off with a must-see panel. The past two events began with a sneak peek at Lucasfilm's upcoming content. 
And while many fans speculated whether the Lucasfilm team would announce something new, nobody knew what to expect at Thursday's opener. The night before, however, a friend and industry insider posted something cryptic on social media. He wrote, Hearing rumors that some very big Star Wars news is to drop tomorrow. Fingers and toes crossed, a lot of folks will be extremely happy if there's any truth to it. Please be true. Please be true. Please be true. I began to dig around on the internet, and within a short time, I had located a YouTube video in which a source had leaked some rather shocking news. Lucasfilm had intended on announcing three new films at the opening panel. One of them would be a culmination of the Mandoverse content from the Disney Plus series, and it would be helmed by Dave Filoni. By the early hours of Thursday morning, the entire Star Wars community learned about these three films. They were the big reveal at Celebration, which had fans speculating and discussing throughout the rest of the weekend. The first film announced would be written and directed by James Mangold and focused on an era 25,000 years before the events of the Clone Wars. It was tentatively titled Dawn of the Jedi as it would tell the story of the first Jedi. Mangold had been working on it in the months leading up to the announcement and had privately nicknamed it Star Wars Zero. The second film announcement made the whispers official. Dave Filoni would be directing his own Star Wars film. For a Star Wars fan who studied under George Lucas for years, this was a dream come true, and many agreed it was a decision deserved. Very little was unveiled about the story, but the team acknowledged that it would indeed close out the interconnected stories told in the Disney Plus series, like The Mandalorian, Ahsoka, and The Book of Boba Fett. And with the return of Thrawn and Ahsoka, it appeared Filoni was heading down a path similar to the one in Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire novel trilogy from the 1990s. The final announcement brought a surprise guest to the stage. Daisy Ridley, the actress who portrayed Rey in the sequel trilogy, greeted fans and joined director Charmaine Obeid Chinoy. Together, they discuss the third film, which takes place 15 years after Episode Nine's Rise of Skywalker, and shows Rey's journey to rebuild the new Jedi Order. While these three announcements had the community buzzing, there was very little information available. I decided to research as much as I could in the hours after the panel, in order to make a podcast episode detailing each potential film. I pulled all the relevant information available, along with quotes from the panel and ones given to the entertainment publications during that celebration weekend. And I traced the history of Mangold's former connection to Lucasfilm, and whether past legend stories may influence his film. Concerning Filoni's Mandoverse movie, I found a quote from Lucasfilm head Kathleen Kennedy dating back to 2020 where she publicly stated that a culmination of the stories told on the small screen was always part of the plan. And some further information from Kennedy after the panel gave us further insight into the direction for Rey's story, and why rebuilding the Jedi Order would mean something to her. From the celebration announcements, it appeared Lucasfilm wanted to tell three main stories. One of the past, one of the present, and one of the future. Whether these films will actually make it to movie theaters is an entirely different story. 
but episode 127 presents most of what we currently know about each of them. Episode 128 is one of my personal favorites from the year. I did not travel out to London this year for celebration, but a number of our friends and fellow collectors made that trip. And in the days leading up to the event, I reached out to many of them and asked them if they would record some moments live from the weekend. I had published a similar episode last year around Celebration Anaheim, and it turned out to be such an enjoyable listen. I had hoped to create an audio scrapbook of collectors' experiences in London, but when what you receive is totally out of your control, you never know if it will work. Fortunately, our friends are truly incredible. They were so kind to stop at various points and to record some wonderful moments around the convention. Dan Uthman told the story of how he went on a tour of some of the London shooting locations for the live-action series Andor which was a personal favorite of his. England is a place that is rich with Star Wars filming sites. I can't encourage people enough to come here and check them all out. You need a solid week to pull it off because they're so far flung from the north to the extreme southern coast uh, and all throughout the city of London as well, thanks to Andor and Rogue One and... Pinewood, that it's hard to get into, but if maybe you can finagle your way in there. But there's enough beyond the studios themselves that are publicly accessible that make it fully worth the trip. So my trip started this morning uh, in London by taking the railway into town and checking out a building that is a site of season two of Andor. Then we headed over to uh, the Barbican, which is essentially like the Kennedy Center of England. Um, theater and, and cinema and a library. Residences for 4,000 people. Um, it's a pretty prominent complex in central London uh, that was built between the 1950s and finally completed in 1982, if you can believe that, but it's true. But anyway, uh, if you watch episode seven of Andor and a number of other episodes, you're going to see some familiar sights uh, from the Barbican um, complex. Um, and after that, you know, you, there's no stopping in London without going to see the Canary Wharf, the underground, the furthest down platform in that station uh, is where you get to see uh, one of the quick scenes from Rogue One. I think you guys are all familiar with it. And then near there now also, um, just essentially through an indoor shopping mall, the Canada Place, uh, you come to uh, the uh, plaza outside of the ISB from Andor. Um, so anyway, that was how I spent the first part of my day. Mike DiStefano, Narayan Nike, and Carl Reeder also filled us in on their travels to the convention. And for a long weekend, I felt like I was traveling with them. Trevor Wenzel, Jonathan McElwain, and Bill Cable also brought us into the convention, highlighting collector conversations and funny moments from the show floor and beyond. 
Zia Resvi volunteered to work at the collector's track this year. And he recorded so many conversations across all four days at the exhibition center. Zia spoke with notable collectors presenting panels, as well as ones attending the panels. He also talked to cosplayers and attendees he met in the moment. And each conversation was connective and fascinating. Hi, David. I've got uh, the one and only uh, Jim Swearengin, uh, who's going to talk to me about the story. Tell, tell us, to, uh, Jim. Uh, hi. Um, I was talking about uh, having some sculptors show up at uh, one of the conventions in Nashville, ICCC. And his name was Steve Geddes. He was, uh, he was one of the principal sculptors on the early Star Wars stuff. And the story went that, that he told on stage was that he wor- was working on the Dagobah playset. And he'd been working on it for months. And, it, and it, part of it was he was polishing it and, and changing it and doing it, all this stuff over and over again. He got so bored that he decided to put some... Easter eggs in it, so he put his daughter's name in the back of a snake that was carved into the base, and his wife's name is in there somewhere. And then he was really wanted to see if he'd get something past all the people that had approved it. So he did a self-portrait that's hidden in the tree, the roots of the tree, where Yo's house was. So he carved this little portrait of himself. And it went through lots and lots of, you know, everybody had to approve it and go through it and make sure, you know, that everything was looking exactly right and it's perfect and all that stuff. And it rated all the way up to the head of the engineering and design department, and he had to sign off on it. So he turned it over to him, and he thought for sure they were going to come back and say, you got to change this. you got to get rid of that face and all that stuff. But he made it all the way into production. Fantastic. So at the show, he was telling the story on stage. And after he got off the stage, the, all the collectors went out and searched every day in the whole, uh, the whole uh, exhibit area and brought him to him to sign and to show him where the, uh, the Easter eggs were hidden. Fantastic. So he was, and then he was also working on the Rancor monster. So they went out and cleared all the Rancor monsters out of the exhibitor area and brought to him. And he had brought his waxer to show people how they actually started the stuff. Fantastic. And he was branding them. He was taking his hot waxer and carving his signature into the foot pads of the Rancor monster. So it was just really funny that the collectors just went crazy about hearing all these stories. So I've been trying to find some more sculptors to come to the shows, but right now I, I'm a little—it's been very hard to talk, and because most of them have gone back to doing art and right, right. and kind of living the simple life of, of course, you know, creativity. But and they they think it's too much like public speaking. Right, so, right. So I, I'm still working on them. Okay, Maybe excellent. next time. Thank you very much for your time, Jim. Much appreciated. My pleasure. May the force be with you. (laughs) It was such a joy to hear each recording from Zia. He and the others brought me to London through the magic of their conversations. And when Zia sent me his final clip, in which he wrapped up his time at Celebration and said goodbye from the event, I got choked up. I was thousands of miles away, but I knew something special was ending. 
And thanks to Zia and our friends, Hyatt experienced the weekend of Celebration London through the alchemy of their recordings. And the magic in those messages and conversations was a true gift for all of us. And of course, an episode live from Celebration wouldn't be complete without Gordy Owen, Prototypes and Productions' roving reporter. Gordy spoke with a number of collectors, asking them a few questions about their time at Celebration. Here's Gordy with the creator of the Star Wars Collector's Archive, Gus Lopez. All right, it's Gordy checking back in with you here for uh, David Quinn's Prototypes and production here with uh, Gus Lopez. We're going to hit him with the three questions. So, uh, Gus, what was your favorite moment of this year's celebration? Well, I think it was very exciting when they announced the new Star Wars movies. I wasn't, I was busy and didn't see the panel where they announced it, but the news was great. And that was uh, anticipated, but uh, I think surprising to people too, the amount of detail about new movies. Absolutely. That's the soul of all this, right? Um, so we're going to move to the second question here. What was your favorite pickup? I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear this one. Yeah, I mean, uh, I got a pretty cool vintage uh, display piece, like a Cobot piece from Spain, from Javier Florencio at room sales. So that was a uh, vintage food item is always an awesome thing to pick up, especially one that's a non-U.S. one. So that was my favorite pickup. That is awesome. I think we're, uh, we're all going to be looking forward to seeing that one posted up. Um, last question. It's been a little tough this year to trade swag, but uh, we're still finding a way to make it happen. Um, this has been the hardest question for most people to answer. What was your favorite swag item of this year? It's hard to pick because, you know, a lot of them are, are very good. Uh, and, you know, um, I, I still am very partial to the second generation of the ice cream patches. Uh, and so I've very much enjoyed that set. And, uh, and I, think, I think they're still, like, uh, among my favorites. So, you know, we had them in Anaheim, but they did a new set of characters for London. So uh, that would be my top pick. Excellent. Thank you for taking a few minutes, Gus. I'll let you get back to things. The episode is number 128 and is titled Live from London, Fans and Collectors Share Stories from the Star Wars Celebration Weekend. If you want to hear what Celebration London was really like, or if you just need to listen to something to brighten your day, this is definitely the episode for you. I would like to say a Bantha-sized thank you to everyone who contributed to making this episode possible and memorable. April was also a milestone celebration for the Washington, D.C. Metro Area Star Wars Collecting Club. On the eve of the club's 20th anniversary, I sat down with seven of the core members for a roundtable discussion on the club's history, its charitable fundraising, and what the club has meant personally to each of them over the years. It was a fascinating roundtable. I was joined by Hector Ilario, Tom Boone, Marcus Galloway, Matthew Fox, Eric Janicki, Jonathan McElwain, and the club's president, Martin Thurn. Here's Martin explaining the origins of the DC club. The club started in the summer of 2003, technically as a Yahoo group, uh, created by Mike Kurtz. And he got a great response uh, overwhelmed his expectations, I think. And within just a couple months, he scheduled a face-to-face -face meeting at a local library uh, here in Virginia. And uh, there were 18 people at that first meeting. And uh, we, we, it's a, it was a, I, I'll never forget it. We sat around, uh, 
the, 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 we, we put the, we had chairs around the perimeter of the room and we just kind of sat there and started each, each other for a while. <laughs> it was very <laughs> awkward because we, nobody knew each other, but, uh, sure. it, it's great to see how the club has blossomed since then. And here's Marcus to explain what his first meeting was like. I'd just like to add one thing. Yeah. Sure. I, I, as probably, I think on this call, I'm, I'm the newest member. And so I joined, you know, the club was a little more than 10 years on. Um, and I knew about it for a few years. So it's like, I already knew I was walking into a group of people that all knew each other. Uh, so I gotta admit that first meeting was a little uh, intimidating to some degree. Uh, you know, I'm the new guy, right? Some people are staring me down. Some people are talking to me, but you know what? I don't know what, you know, we have star Wars in common, but what does that mean? And I, I just want to throw out kind of a, a mention to Bob Martinazzi. Uh, you know, he talked to me the first meeting among a lot of other people, but when I came back to the second meeting, he immediately walked up to me, shook my hand, said, I'm glad you came back. And I think that's important for anybody out there listening that, you know, when you, for the, that's not, that's not sure about going into this situation, hopefully someone on the other end is going to welcome them. And, and, uh, I, I think that just, that, that ends all your questions and all your fears. During the conversation, Jonathan shared how the club had helped him to develop bonds within the community as he stretched beyond his introverted nature. Well, Marcus, just to kind of uh, riff on that a little bit, when I came to the club, I didn't really know anybody, right? I, I had gone to Celebration 3. This, the club was set up, but, you know, I'm fairly introverted. I didn't go talk to anybody at the club. And, again, it was to echo back to Bar- Bob Martinazzi and sort of his importance in a lot of our kind of, I, I would call it an origin story. He gave a business card for the club to my sister-in-law who was picking up myself and my, and my brother from the airport. And I took that card home and, and you know, still didn't do anything with it for almost a year until I joined, uh, and joined the club. And, you know, of course, I knew Martin's name as, you know, part of the sort of old guard of, of, of Star Wars collecting, I suppose. Um, but it was really for me getting to know Martin. And then uh, I connected with Gus Lopez a little bit on, you know, just doing some trades and stuff. But um, really what I learned was just the importance of, of friendships. And, you know, to some extent, I think some people listen to these things and say, well, you know, you are collectors. It is a little bit more about, you know, things just than friendships. And, and that's fair, right? It, it But but in both sort of friendships and just the importance of networking with other other collectors and you know i am hardwired you know introvert kind of thing so um it took a lot for me to overcome sort of my own sort of uh, you know embedded nature to to kind of get to know people but man once i did it, it really just changed the you know it changed my collecting what i could what i could do what i was interested in and I am a way better collector for having, you know, been a part of this group. And it really did, it really, for me, really did start here and, and the, the, the friendships I made here and, and just sort of figuring out that, yeah, I, I could, I could do this. If I could be part of this community, you know, I, maybe I could be a part of the larger community. So uh, I'm sort of forever thankful for the club to kind of, I don't know, what it's, what it's done to just kind of help me in, in sort of the things I'm interested in. And I asked Hector what Star Wars meant to him. Star Wars, to me, as cliche as it sounds, means family, friendship. Just there's something about building moments with, uh, you know, people that I've grown up with. 
here in my house as well as uh, people I've gotten to know over the years. Uh, I believe that most people that stick around the hobby evolve past the point of buying things just to buy them and actually start looking at all the all the memories that you end up uh, making with with friends. It's just like when you're growing up and you know you go out and you you hang out and you do things and you think you're invincible. Uh, you know, playing Star Wars, kind of sort of the same thing. And Eric added to Hector's thoughts on collecting and connecting. But th- when Hector talked about his family, I remember a moment at the last celebration. I had to meet up with his wife to get her special swag that she created with a group of other women. Um, and so they're like, hey, come up to our hotel room. And I go up to their hotel suite, actually. And it's Hector, his wife, his two daughters, his one daughter's fiance. And they're all in this one room, snuggled up in beds with swag everywhere. And they're just enjoying the moment as a family. Hector, I'm sure you remember that. Um, and that, that just, that's why, I, I, David, I forget what your exact question was, but that's what makes me excited of being part of this community. It's just moments like that. You just go up in someone's hotel room and everyone's just, hanging out and enjoying star Wars and you know, um, I do actually forget what the question was, David, what was it? The, the, the question was why does collecting in the club mean so much to you? And I, yeah. I think you answered it in, in the most yeah, perfect way possible. Yeah. It's, it's just moments like that. It's seeing folks and my friends, you know, enjoying star Wars for why they love it. I'm not here to judge anyone or here to, um, you know, impose my collecting uh, mantra on anyone. I just let people be who they want to be, and I enjoy hanging out with them. The episode was the beginning of a series I plan to continue in the new year, exploring the history of each of the collecting clubs across the country, as told through the ones who started them and are a part of them. And 20 years of Star Wars and collecting in the D.C. area is certainly cause for celebration. The final episode of April was number 130, titled Star Wars Fans and Collectors Reflect on This Year's Celebration London Convention. After listening to episode 128 during a bike ride, I realized I wanted to hear more about our friends' experiences from London, while their memories were still fresh. The convention offers a wide spectrum of experiences, from the panels and events to the ones the collectors orchestrate, like dinners and parties and each attendee's escapades form a truly unique take on the Star Wars-themed weekend. For the episode, I asked a number of the contributors to give an overview of their days spent in London, with the perspective that comes with time away from the event. They could be as brief or as detailed as they wanted to be. I just wanted them to share what resonated with them. Here's Thorsten Greth with a peek into what made this celebration so special for him, as well as an incredibly rare item he picked up. Another celebration is now in the books. What a great event it was. 2022 in Anaheim 
was still marked by COVID restrictions and limitations. That's why many of my friends were not there. This year, however, we were all able to indulge in our favorite hobby together again. I was very happy to get together with my friends. That has always been the most important thing for me at celebrations. On the arrival day, I was welcomed by one of my closest friends, Darren McAleese. We hadn't seen each other for years. What made the celebration so special for me uh, this time um, is the fact that I was uh, on the one hand um, um, a sponsor for the medallions of the collecting track. My character was Darth Vader. Um, and these uh, medallions were handed out after the collecting track lectures and panels. And on the other hand, I was um, a speaker myself at one of my very first own lectures as part of the collecting track. I'm very grateful to Gus Lopez in particular for giving me this opportunity. My topic, by the way, was German Star Wars toys and memorabilia from the 70s and 80s. Maybe you've been there. I was a bit nervous beforehand, but that subsided very quickly. It makes me very proud um, to have done something for the fans together with the Collecting Track community. It's um, yeah, kind of uh, rewarding and I'm very grateful. Of course, I also found something nice for my personal collection. A Pablo on a Tri-Logo card with a picture of Wicked. This variant was only available in Spain back then and it's extremely rare. Actually, I had not looked for it at all because I had long given up uh, hope of finding such a nice piece. So it was all the nicer that I spotted the figure in the bottom row of a stall. And of course, I didn't hesitate for long. Naturally, the room sales are always the highlight for everyone. You know this um, because unique and very rare pieces are often offered here by collectors for collectors. I didn't buy anything myself this time, but had a few pieces with me that I offered. And if you sell, all your friends automatically stop at your booth and um, yeah, you can start talking shop very nicely. There's also time for nice photos and uh, maybe a drink or two. And of course, after the room sells, what um, has happened then? A big party in the hotel bar and in general, in general, each of our evenings ended with a great get-together in, uh, in bars and uh, restaurants and stuff like this. And uh, I think that is uh, how it should be. We spent as much time together as we could. And you never know when you uh, meet up again. In the end, I'm already looking forward to the next celebration. Um, I don't know yet if I'll make it to Japan, but I'd definitely be tempted. So stay sharp and uh, may the force be with you. Cheers. And while Zia Resvi gave us so many live updates from Celebration in episode 128, I was curious to know what the convention meant to him in the days and weeks since the Expo Center closed its doors on another Star Wars event. Hello, this is uh, Zia Resvi reflecting on my experience of Star Wars Celebration Europe held in London. So yes, I had a good, I had a good time. Um, it was four days uh, full of meetups, panels, cosplays, and stuff like that. So really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I set out to um, really meet three objectives at the beginning of the celebration. Uh, 
Uh, objective one was to volunteer at the collecting truck panels organized by Gas Lopez. Uh, and uh, that was fun. That was uh, great because I mingled with fellow collectors, uh, met some um, great uh, panelists, attended some wonderful talks. Uh, next objective was to help David in his podcast to interview people, but also give us a regular status update. It was actually quite an uh, insightful experience since I, I managed to approach complete strangers and ask them about Star Wars and what it meant uh, to them. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, my final aim was to really meet up with a lot of people I've met, connected over the years, uh, and, and, and you know see them face to face. And that was something, you know, that I will not forget, uh, that I will cherish for a long time, and something very special. The two celebration episodes complemented one another nicely. The first gave us a live look at the goings-on during the weekend, and the second offered a more nuanced and deeper overview from those reflecting on the moments that only celebration offers. May. Last year, in January of 2022, I began a new series on the history of Hasbro's HasLab projects for the Star Wars toy line. HasLab is a crowdfunded venture in which Hasbro offers premium toys and playsets that would never make it to retail, but would be put into production upon reaching a target number of backers. The campaign for each HasLab project generally lasts six weeks and each one has been marked by a wild and fascinating story. Hasbro introduced HasLab in 2018, with Jabba the Hutt's four-foot-long sail barge for its vintage collection line. After the success of the barge, Hasbro exceeded expectations with another vintage collection follow-up in 2020, with the Mandalorian's Razorcrest ship. The Razorcrest met its minimum backer goal of 6,000 pre-orders in the first 24 hours of the campaign. At its conclusion, a total of 28,000 ships had been purchased. Hasbro had been on a hot streak, and in 2021 decided to expand its HasLab offerings to include the 6-inch Black Series line. Unlike the previous vintage collection HasLabs, the introductory item would not be a ship. Instead, Hasbro premiered the largest figure produced for what was already a larger-scale line. And if enough Star Wars fans backed this project, the company would unleash the Return of the Jedi Rancor. So in May of this year, I did a two-part series covering the first Star Wars HasLab failure. The campaign hit an unfortunate snag very early on, before Hasbro officially announced it. Here is a clip from that moment. With the June announcement, Hasbro's intention was to keep the next Star Wars HasLab item a secret until the fall. That plan was quickly dashed a month later, during a follow-up livestream event. 
On July 15th, the Hasbro brand team's Patrick Schneider and designer Chris Reif hosted a question and answer session with some of the fan channels that cover the toys, like the website from Forlom to Zuckus. The session was more of an informal conversation, in which our fellow collectors and site operators had the opportunity to ask questions relevant to the action figure community. However, these casual live streams were still constrained by what the team could reveal. Any future projects were strictly off-limits, with Patrick or Chris politely reminding the audience that they couldn't speak about anything that hadn't been announced previously. But regarding the HasLab project, this particular live stream began in the worst possible way for the company, with a simple misstep. For the first question, a German collector asked Patrick about Hasbro's HasLab strategy for delivering products to a European market. Patrick responded, HasLab has changed drastically in the three years since it was launched. We did make huge strides, honestly, from the barge in 2018 to the Razorcrest last year. We were able to make that available to a lot more international consumers. Many factors more. Zavi, obviously, was the retailer across the EU last year. You know, it's TBD for future HasLab items. Again, it's evolving quickly, and so, you know, we'll see even for the Rancor. Sorry, for the Black Series item that's launching whenever that may be. We'll see what we will do with that. And so, TBD for future HasLab items, but we are committed to getting those to as many fans as possible. It took but a millisecond for Patrick to realize what he had just said. His eyes flashed wide with an understanding that he had revealed a huge company secret months in advance. He had said the word Rancor audibly to a public audience of Star Wars fans. Among the collecting community, the news of Patrick's slip jumped to light speed and surfaced online and among the social media groups. As the senior global brand manager, Patrick had essentially confirmed that the Rancor would be the next HasLab project. Hasbro introduced the Rancor at the company's annual PulseCon that October. To boost interest, the toy company offered incentives in the form of stretch goals, add-ons to the project when the backing numbers reached specific tiers. The stretch goals frustrated fans, as they were viewed as lazy and cheap additions to a premium product. But after a series of missteps, as the following clip from the episode highlights, Hasbro may have doomed the project by getting in its own way. It's interesting to note at this point that for the duration of the campaign, Hasbro's biggest competition may have been with itself. In addition to the Rancor, Hasbro launched two other HasLab campaigns concurrently, and all three would end the same week in December 2021. For the G.I. Joe line, Hasbro presented a $230 Skystriker fighter plane that came with multiple figures and accessories. And to capitalize on the longtime love for the original Ghostbusters and the latest film adaptation, 2021's Ghostbusters Afterlife, Hasbro campaigned for a life-size replica of Egon Spangler's Proton Pack, complete with tiers unlocking add-on items from both the classic and new films. And while these HasLab projects were not in the realm of Star Wars, many toy enthusiasts collect items from a variety of brands and lines. Both the Sky Striker and Proton Pack were enticing pickups, 
and coupled with the rancor, presented potential backers with options for spending their money. The projects with the most perceived value would cross over into production, and there was a chance that the Proton Pack and the Sky Striker could overshadow the Rancor, especially with the way the Creatures campaign had progressed by the time the second tier was announced. It's also important to mention that a portion of fans felt ignored by Hasbro. This is detrimental to the type of relationship a crowdfunded endeavor like HasLab requires. Star Wars fans are pretty vocal about their feelings. The passion for the franchise and its figure lines is pretty immense. And yet a larger frustration settled in with every passing day during those six weeks. To many, it felt like the company and the consumer were speaking two different languages. And when attempts at communication feel fruitless, a person will only engage for so long before throwing up their hands in disgust and walking away. The campaign had its share of stumbles, and by the fourth stretch goal announcement, actually lost 500 backers. That loss ultimately played a massive part in keeping the Rancor from crossing the finish line, making it the first Star Wars HasLab failure. Episodes 131 and 132 offer the most comprehensive look at the history of the HasLab Rancor, and is a great reminder of where the campaign faltered but it truly highlights the importance of building a thriving relationship with a company's fan base. It was the key to successes like the Barge and the Razor Crest, and it's the core reason the Rancor failed to cross that finish line. In the third week of May, I returned to the Hudson Valley area for a collector's hike with members of the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club. Collector and friend Ron Salvatore came up with the idea, as well as the location for the hike. We were joined by Chris and Steph Riley, FJD Robertus, David Trimbley, John Alvarez, his friend Jay, and Jay's young son, Ben. Over the course of four hours on a Sunday morning, the nine of us traversed the Mount Beacon Trail. And one of the high points on the hike was, as Ron will explain, truly one of the highest points in the Hudson Valley. <laughs> Ron, tell us what we're about to do. We're about to climb an old fire tower uh, at the highest point of the Hudson Valley at the top of Mount Beacon. And uh, it's... We're, we're just judging how much it wobbles right now, and it does seem to wobble considerably. But David, David out of everyone isn't scared at all. He keeps pushing everyone to go up. We're going. We're doing it. Absolutely. It's, it's stupidity. It's not courage. It's stupidity. So. Is there really a difference at, at some level? This sucker's going to sway. Yeah. Yeah, see that? Those are the people that died climbing the tower right there. I got to get a picture of your point. We are doomed. After you're coming with us. A little bit. I don't think I'm making it all from one to a ten. Okay, so there are there's nine oh. stories. Um, how many stories do you think you'll get out? Like uh, half. <laughs> <laughs> Just there are names emblazoned on, on like the crossbar towards the bottom, and we're speculating that those are people who fell off and died. The, the entire Hudson Valley Federal <laughs> Credit <laughs> Union passed away. That's good, so I don't got to pay my loan back. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> that does <work> out. <laughs> All right, we're going to do this. And of course, as we get to the top, 
the weather changes and starts yes. to get kind of gloomy. <laughs> Lightning's gonna hit this sucker. Yeah. Oh wow, little Ben is all the way up. All right, we're going. Okay, you have to go higher than little Ben. Come on, I got you. I got you. You can go up ahead of me. So if you want to go ahead of me. You prepared to let me back down. I don't. I really don't like this. I really don't like this. I went to about the third landing. I'm sorry. No, no, no. We got you. I got you. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do this, FJ. I'll let you go by. Here, I don't think I'll be able to get back. Stupidity over courage. We got this. You just go like this. Like, oh look, it's easy stairs. Come on, FJ, I got you. I'll go up as far as you go up. No, 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 you gotta keep going. Okay. All right, so Ron, where are we now? Now we're at the top of the fire tower, which has got to be one of the highest points it's possible to stand in the entire Hudson Valley here. Yeah, it's, I, it's nine stories. Is it? it was I didn't count. I was too just focused on not looking down. <laughs> yeah, so we but lost it, Chris. Chris fell down. Chris, um, I he think fell the, off the side, right? I think the technical term is wussed out. <laughs> not even halfway, probably. Third of the way. Yeah. It is nerve-wracking, though. I mean, I don't... I'm not like normally afraid of heights, but it, I definitely feel the fear kicking in. Yeah, this is, uh, the view is incredible. My gosh, I wonder how many miles we're seeing around us right now. Oh, man, you should be able to see probably New York City if it was clear, but it's not clear enough. Yeah, oh, this is epic. This is great. Yeah, Dave, what are your uh, your thoughts on this one? Uh, this is. Uh, Pretty cool. Never been up here. It looks pretty intimidating when you when you see the structure and see it bolted into the uh, the rocks. But once you're up here at the top, it's this uh, is a little bit nerve-wracking. Yeah, once you're at the top, it's pretty uh, pretty good. Less less stress at top than on the bottom, actually. The four of us are going to jump at the same time now. I think that's where to go. <laughs> Pancakes down. <laughs> Jay, what do you think? Boom. I I think it's amazing. It's it's scary because it does shake a little bit. Yeah. But um, it's an amazing view. It's you know. I wish more people would come up and see this. Yeah. I've never seen anything like this. I, me either. There's one thing on the way down I'm going to say that did scare me. I won't say it on the way up, though. But. <laughs> uh, I wonder if like, local kids that dare each other to stay the whole night up here. Oh, my gosh. I, I like the imagine. totally useless like, netting kind of, kind of zip tied to the side. Yeah, no. <laughs> the graffiti oh, is nice. I mean, some of it, be kind to yourself, okay? You could seriously lose your balance like and faint and fall off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Something to shoot for <laughs> on the way down. Thanks, Rod. <laughs> <laughs> the hike was one of those collector events that went well beyond collecting and Star Wars. The nine of us bonded during that four-mile trek on one of the most beautiful days of the spring. I have my own little personal souvenir from that adventure as well. In the last mile of the hike, I was descending a section of large, smooth rocks that were angled toward the ground. I lost my footing and fell, cutting open my hand and the tiny scar that remains is a permanent reminder of that fantastic day. We ended our hike achy and exhausted, but celebrated with a lunch at the I-84 Diner, our second home during the 2022 annual event in Fishkill. Pete LaRose joined us for lunch, and then we ended our excursion with ice cream from an outdoor shop as the cooler weather rolled into the region. It was a truly unforgettable day, and I'm thankful to have this episode as a reminder of the types of moments the Star Wars collecting clubs have given us over the years. And as I mentioned at the end of the episode, I hope you hear this one and are able to join us for a future hike. 
last week in May was the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi, the legendary finale of the original Star Wars trilogy. And if the Celebration London episodes highlighted what made the convention so memorable, episode 134 celebrated how the 1983 film impacted Star Wars fans in profound ways. I wanted to capture some of that magic in this episode, so I reached out to friends and posted a request in our collecting groups for stories connected to the film and to the toys it produced. It's amazing to hear how Return of the Jedi connected with so many collectors. For some, it was the unique creatures, like the Ruthless Rancor or the mighty Jabba the Hutt. For others, it was another chapter in the further adventures of Luke Skywalker and our heroes. But what really struck me was how deeply Return of the Jedi is tied to family. Our friends not only remember the theater in which they first saw the film, but they vividly recall the details. The day they saw it and the family members who joined them for that final film of the trilogy. And family played a big role in these stories. Here's Keith Ware recounting his experience on opening day. Hi, everyone. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. It's Keith Ware. My friends know me as Kiwi. And while I might not remember what I just went into the kitchen to get, I remember the opening day of Return of the Jedi like it was yesterday. It was May 25th, 1983. The weather was your typical spring day for New York, with blue skies and 68 degrees. The morning started off like any other, me getting ready for school, but this wouldn't just be any ordinary day. This particular morning was different, almost electrical. It was filled with excitement and anticipation. As I got out of my parents' station wagon, I was handed a note that read, Please excuse Keith at 9.30 as he has a doctor appointment. I looked at my mother and smiled, not not because I like going to the doctor, but because there was no doctor appointment. This was opening day for Return of the Jedi. Star Wars was a huge part of not only my life, but my family's life. We saw each film on opening day, and my parents always pulled my sister, brother, and I out of school early to see the first showing. After The Empire Strikes Back, we had three years of torturous waiting. There were arguments and debates, will the rebels win, is Han Solo gone, and many others, but the biggest was always, is Darth Vader really Luke's father? After three years of waiting, the day was finally here. All of our questions would be answered. This was the day the trilogy would come to a conclusion. I was picked up from school at 9.30, and we all packed into the family station wagon. My father drove the five of us to the theater for the 10 a.m. show. He didn't take us to our normal theater as he thought it would be too crowded, He chose correctly as the theater he picked was nearly empty. We walked in and he bought me the official Return of the Jedi souvenir program. We found our seats. My father sat in the aisle seat like he always did, followed by me, then my mother, my brother, and my sister. I began looking through the magazine. I remember seeing an image of the Rancor monster and thinking how cool he looked and wondering what part he'd play in the movie. I wouldn't have to wait long to find out as just then the lights began to dim a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and then the music began. Instant goosebumps. Goosebumps I still get today every time I hear that John Williams Star Wars theme. The movie was brilliant and to my surprise, my favorite of the trilogy. I never thought a movie would be better than Empire Strikes Back but here I was in awe and amazement. I loved the story, the characters, the location 
and how it all fit together in a perfect ending to a perfect trilogy. My favorite scene was Jabba's palace and Bard scene. Apparently it was the rest of the family's favorite as well, as my father said we could stay and watch the beginning again of the second showing. My mother, a smoker, decided to pass and go outside and get the car. The four of us sat there again, goosebumps. The Jabba scene was as good the second time around as it was the first. We were sucked in, and before we knew it, the Ewoks and Rebels were celebrating their victory, and the end credits began. We got to the car. My mother was extremely angry with us, but mostly my father. Our only the first 20 minutes, we promise, had turned into the full two hours and 11 minutes. I had seen the movie twice before my friends were even out of school. Now that all our questions were answered and we knew who all the new characters were and where they fit into the movie, it was time to search for the toys. And while many of the stories shared in the episode were humorous reflections on childhood, for some, Return of the Jedi is a special but bittersweet memory. Here's Andrew Agnello on the connection between the film and his father. Hey David, this is Andrew. I wanted to share my Return of the Jedi story with you. And this is actually my favorite Star Wars film and the one that I find most special. And it's something that I've always loved just for the contents of the movie in terms of it being a dramatic ending to the trilogy at the time. Uh, But here's a little backstory as to why it's my favorite film. So this is back in 1996. It's the start of the school year. And I had my first glimpse of Star Wars toys. Kids were playing with an X-Wing and some various figures at recess, and I was not familiar with Star Wars yet at this time. And later that day, I got home, and I asked my mom about it, and she said, oh yeah, Star Wars, your father and I saw that back when it came out. It was such a big deal, and you'll have to ask your father about it when he gets home. He really loves those movies. So I did, and he was very excited to tell me about it. That weekend, we were supposed to go rent one of the movies, but we ended up going to Palmer Video and bought the entire trilogy on VHS and stopped at Toys R Us to pick up uh, a few figures. And that's really how it all started for me. I was very close with my father during my childhood, and we really bonded through hobbies and spending time collecting. And I have to say the collecting gene is definitely genetic. To say he was a baseball collector, a baseball card collector, was an understatement. I never really got into baseball cards, but I really enjoyed spending time with him at card shows, and going around to different collectible shops. We both loved trains, and he had a very impressive collection of Lionel and N-Gage trains. And he was always into toys that I liked, whether it was Power Rangers or Star Wars. And he would regularly surprise me with something like a new Luke Skywalker or a Megazord for no special occasion. Fast forward to March of 97, and I had a Star Wars birthday party, where my friends came over to the house for lunch. We had a ton of food. And the party was Star Wars themed, of course. I actually found one of the paper plates and cups a few months ago cleaning uh, out an old closet. Definitely going to be a treasured piece of my collection moving forward. My friends gave me lots of Star Wars themed presents, and it was something that we really all loved. Afterwards, we went to the local movie theater, and we saw Return of the Jedi Special Edition. My mom, dad, father, uh, we all drove over to the theater in different cars. And it was truly magical. But none of us really knew just how special that time really was. Return of the Jedi ended up being the last movie that I saw in theaters with my father. It was also the last birthday that I got to celebrate with my father. Unfortunately, later that summer, he 
unexpectedly became ill and then passed away towards the end of the summer. And Return of the Jedi is always going to be that special movie, but also Star Wars movie, of a very big change in my life. And I always think of him when I watch it. And unfortunately, I never really got to collect Star Wars with him. And I know it would have been really amazing to have gone through this journey of collecting Star Wars and just really loving the films and the toys with him. And so that's my Return of the Jedi story and why that movie is so special to me. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I'll talk to you soon, David. Bye. And Keith and Andrew's stories are only a small taste of the amazing collection of Jedi narratives. Episode 134 is a personal favorite of mine because it captures a spectrum of experiences tied to one of the most iconic films of all time. And listening to these stories, these first-hand accounts shared by our friends and fellow Star Wars fans, was a wonderful way to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi. And it made me appreciate the film and the fandom on a much deeper level. The month of June began with a second episode devoted to Return of the Jedi's 40th. Episode 135 featured collector stories around the memorabilia from that era and over the past four decades. They were funny and striking, and they offered us insight into why Return of the Jedi continued to resonate with us even after the film left theaters. The collectibles were the souvenirs that allowed us to see the movie from unique perspectives. Items like playsets and action figures provided us with the actors and stage to continue the adventures of Luke Skywalker and the rebel forces that toppled an empire. And like the stories from the previous episode concerning the film, many of these tales around the toys were tied to family memories as well. Here's a really sweet flashback to Jared Clark's childhood. Hi, this is Jared Clark, and I wanted to share one of my uh, favorite memories um, related to the Kenner Return of the Jedi toys. Um, when I was young, I think about five or six years old, I went to Kmart with my mom and my grandmother. And when we got there, uh, they had told me that they needed to do some shopping for my grandmother's friend whose grandson was having a birthday. And apparently he really liked Star Wars and they wanted me to help, you know, pick some things out. And already having, you know, Star Wars um, figures, I thought, oh, yeah, cool. I can definitely help. And so, you know, we started going through the end cap of action figures and toys. And I remember picking some out and going, oh, no, he, he already has that one. And I said, oh, yeah, but this one's really cool. I think he'll like it. And they're like, yeah, but he has that one, too. And, you know, not really putting two and two together. You know, just kept moving ahead and found some that I thought he would like. Um Sort of bummed out, though, because at the end of it all, you know, I picked out a whole bunch of great new Return of the Jedi toys that I didn't have any of. So, you know, I asked, is there any way I can get one? And I remember them letting me get a Paplu figure that day. So I was pretty uh, excited about that. Come to find out a couple weeks later at my birthday party um, when I was opening my gifts, 
I ended up receiving all of the items I had picked out. So it was actually a big surprise. And, um, you know, one that I, I really look back on with, you know, with a big smile. Um, it was also uh, on that birthday that I remember getting the uh, preschool Ewok um, electric toothbrush from my sister. And for those that know me and my sort of collection nowadays, um, that was pretty significant. So uh, a great, a great year. And I actually have some photos from that birthday. So um, always treasure it. Thanks for having me on, David. The passion, excitement, and detail in these two episodes helped me to see the impact of Return of the Jedi through the stories of others. It made me realize how many of us have had similar experiences with the franchise, and how important a film like Jedi was for so many of us growing up in the 1980s and 1990s. For the second episode in June, I covered the state of the hobby during the summer season with a return to ToyCon NJ. Before the pandemic, ToyCon was held in Parsippany, New Jersey, and premiered in 2014. I've had some incredible vintage Star Wars finds at the show over the past decade, and I never missed a spring or fall show. But starting in 2018, ToyCon became more than a day out for many of the regional collecting club members. It grew into a collector's event, one in which members from the Empire State Club, the D.C. Club, the Pennsylvania Club, and the Northeast Club would meet and would spend the day together. We'd go out for a long lunch in the middle of the show, and on some occasions, we'd head to a local collector's home to hang out after the show concluded. After being held in another town for the past few years, ToyCon returned to Parsippany this June. In episode 136, I covered six trends that I gleaned from one of the biggest and most popular toy shows in New Jersey. I learned a lot about where the hobby was at the time, and doing this episode helped to give me a clearer picture of how toy shows were performing. And while I noticed fewer vintage Star Wars items for sale, and a slashing of prices for modern Hasbro figures, one of the trends was a very positive direction for toy shows in general. Here's trend number five from that episode. Trend number five. Star Wars and toy shows are about families. One of the notable and wonderful progressions in toy shows has been the rise of families in attendance. And this was evident at ToyCon NJ. The vintage toy shows of yesteryear catered to hobbyists. And in some ways, a show would be an event for individuals who would find a community in the company of one another. And while this is true for many, I believe we're seeing more families attending and shopping shows together. The emergence of this trend happened for a few reasons. The collecting explosion of the pandemic crossed generations and affected almost every type of collectible imaginable. Comics, cards, toys, dolls, electronics, video games, you name it, and it drew an audience. And as a result, toy shows slowly morphed into their own versions of conventions, offering much more than simply toys. Suddenly, comic tables crept into the room, and the nostalgia of Pokemon cards ignited an entire generation. Customized and customizable figures grew in popularity. Autographs and photo ops with celebrities became highlights. 
Things that might not be on your radar were suddenly piping hot, desirable among a younger audience. And when all of it is in one location, it becomes a destination for the entire family. A show like ToyCon is no exception. It offered a variety of memorabilia that not only appealed to the children of decades past, but to the ones of the current decade as well. I know I've mentioned the pandemic a lot, but I think it largely affected the toy show and collecting experience. Collectors and toy enthusiasts were cooped up during the quarantine, and they and their families needed an outlet. A toy show like ToyCon became more than a toy show. It was a day out to cast off the worries of the real world and to do some treasure hunting, no matter your age or your interest. And you could make the argument that over the previous year or so, it's become less about the items and more about the moments. And if your family is up for the challenge, what better way to spend a day as a collector than sifting through boxes and tables with them? I spoke to Adam later that day once I had returned home. He told me he went back to ToyCon in the afternoon, this time with his son. The two of them toured the show together, and he had the opportunity to see ToyCon through his son's eyes. At the end of their time there, they purchased a box of Star Wars Signature Series cards and landed a special Darth Maul card autographed by legendary voice actor Sam Witwer. In Star Wars and at toy shows, family makes the experiences even more meaningful. The final episode of the month focused on the June Prop Store Auction. I had not covered a Prop Store Auction previously, but when I saw the contents of this catalog, I knew I had to do an episode about it. The main Star Wars piece in the auction was Princess Leia's ceremonial gown, worn by Carrie Fisher in the 1977 film. It failed to reach its reserve and did not sell. And while that may have muted some of the coverage the auction would have received otherwise, I believe this prop store auction is one of the most significant ones in a decade for a wider audience of Star Wars collectors. The June catalog certainly had its share of props to appeal to fans of the films. It contained lightsabers used by the Jedi and the Sith in the prequel trilogy. It also had incredible remnants from the original trilogy, such as a Force perspective painting from the iconic Death Star Trench sequence. In my opinion, it wasn't just the movie props that made this auction so memorable. It was the variety of significant pieces from Star Wars' exciting history. They are some of the crucial and profound relics that captured the creativity of the era and brought a new galaxy to all of us. The Star Wars item that closed at the highest price during the three days was not a lightsaber. It wasn't the design work by famed artist Ralph McQuarrie. Instead, it was Robert Blalock's Praxis Optical Printer, selling for $337,500. In this clip from episode 137, I explain the fascinating significance of the optical printer and how it firmly cemented its place in Star Wars history. Lot number 409, Robert Blalock's Praxis Optical Printer. In an auction filled with historic pieces from the original Star Wars film, the optical printer 
is pretty unassuming. It resembles an antique whose purpose has been lost to advancements in modern technology. But this particular printer played a crucial role in the making of Star Wars. One of the most important keys to the success of Star Wars was its groundbreaking special effects. At the time, the team at Industrial Light and Magic faced an unimaginable deadline to produce 300 revolutionary effect shots in seven months. Robert Blalick was the film supervisor for composite optical photography. He oversaw the department responsible for layering multiple filmed effects into one shot on celluloid. In a sense, Blalick and his team provided the visual bridge that connected the storytelling and filmmaking of George Lucas with the incredible effects created by ILM. Reflecting on his time with Blalick, optical assistant Bruce Nicholson noted, In the traditional era, compositing was a very complicated and Byzantine process, with multiple film elements required for every layer in a shot. It was easy to lose track of shot flow, but Robbie's system and the help of a couple of coordinators helped keep everything on track. He combined artistry and technical know-how, the main qualities needed for success in visual effects. And to make these composites happen, Blalick customized a Praxis optical printer, which was used to complete every effect shot for Star Wars. The Praxis printer consists of a camera, two projectors, and a lamp housing. It is stationed on a long base that was crafted to prevent vibration or movement, so that the effects lined up properly for each frame. In addition to Star Wars, Blalick used the printer for films like Blues Brothers, Airplane, and Robocop. Blalick was part of a team recognized for their industry-changing work on Star Wars, winning an Academy Award for Best Special Effects in 1978. This printer is the machine through which the on-screen experience of Star Wars was born. What really drew me to the June Prop Store auction was the sheer amount of notable original art from the collection of William Plum. Plum was a pioneer in this area, hunting down original Star Wars works beginning in the mid-1980s. And as a result of his dedication to the hobby, Plum had acquired some of the most iconic drawings and paintings from that era. For the first time in decades, collectors had the chance to own art from the activity in pop-up books, the Random House bookmarks, and covers from various publications and comics. And in one particular case, a winning bidder could take home the art for a children's Ewoks book in its entirety from the hand-painted cover to the original pencils for the pages, as well as the final painted versions. For many of us, these pieces were just as important as the images in the films. They were the ones we owned, studying each page intensely and burning them into our minds as we sought to return to the galaxy George Lucas had created for us. And sometimes, a bookmark is just as impactful as the pages between which it rests.
So that is a look at the first half of 2023 from a collector's perspective. The year was so fruitful and was so packed with Star Wars moments that this sweeping episode is only a tiny snapshot of what occurred. If any of these segments interested you, I'd recommend going back through the year and revisiting episodes to get a better understanding and a fuller appreciation of the first six months of 2023. And if you missed an episode during the year, or if you haven't listened to any of them yet, I think you'll find them to be just as impactful now and hopefully as rewarding. I would like to thank everyone who took the time to record something for the podcast this year, as well as those who came on the podcast for a collector's chat. My favorite episodes are the ones which highlight our friends through chats with them and through their stories. And they're the types of conversations and recordings I dreamed of publishing when I began the podcast, because I wanted to make our community a little more familiar to collectors and a little closer. So if you were on an episode for a minute or for an hour, please know that it meant the world to me. And I hope these episodes that feature each of you serve to be a nice audio scrapbook of your time as a collector and Star Wars fan. In the next episode, we'll take a walk through the world between worlds once again to look back on the past six months. And I can promise you, the second half of the year was just as exciting as the first, if not more so. We continued with a celebration of Return of the Jedi's 40th. We returned to the Toys for the Ages Expo and Toy-Con NJ. Hasbro produced its latest HasLab project, its first Star Wars success in almost three years. We learned what it was like to host a meetup for the first time, what this year's Cincinnati Toy Show weekend was like, and why a 30-year collector decided to part with his entire collection. And together, we celebrated the 15th anniversary of The Clone Wars, the premiere of the Ahsoka live-action series, and the pickups and highlights of 2023. And believe it or not, those are only a few of the moments covered in the next episode, which will begin an all-new season of the podcast. So join me for part two of a look back at 2023 from a collector's perspective on Star Wars, Prototypes, and Production. Happy New Year.